Luke 22 from verse 47. We've moved away from that upper room where the Lord's Supper was first celebrated. We have gone out now into the garden in the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where our Lord has been praying, even to the point where he needed the strengthening of an angel from heaven, and that only renewed the intensity of his prayers. And now, verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, look, a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray once more. Again, O God, we come and ask for help from heaven, not just to hear, but to grasp something of what is taking place in this portion of your word. Lord, show us more of Jesus Christ, we ask. If the only lesson we learn, if the only thing we carry away is to see more clearly his kindness, his mercy, his goodness, his saving strength, then we will do well. But, O oh God, we ask that this would be a matter of divine power, of divine illumination, of help from heaven for our needy souls, that we may marvel and adore because of Jesus Christ and perhaps learn something more of what it means to be followers of the Lamb. Lord, hear us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of of the cross. We're in the last awful steps of that descent. We're answering the question how does Christ come to be in the hands of his enemies who will crucify him on that Roman cross? Our Lord has come from this season of prayer, both strengthened and exhausted. There is a resolution now to that tension that he felt as, a, as the God-man, contemplating the cup of God's wrath against sin, which he must drink, and in, in his humanity, drawing back from the prospect. 
and yet recognising that he has come to do his Father's will. And now, although, as we said last week, he's, he's there bloodied and sweaty from the, the trial and the torment of this season of prayer, there's a measure of calmness and control as a multitude begins to make its way into the Mount of Olives and into this particular part of the garden. We said last week that to some extent you could write over this that he must tread the winepress alone, and we're seeing that. But I think also there is an echo here of something that we picked up right at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, because the child is the father of the man, and that is a, a valid principle. Do you remember a 12-year-old Jewish boy whose parents lost him when they went up to Jerusalem? Do you remember how as they were on their way back to their home they started frantically looking for their boy and they rushed back to Jerusalem only to find him there in the temple engaged in discussion and debate with the teachers of the law and they said to him as parents still do when they find their boys when they've got into trouble didn't you know we were looking for you didn't you realize how worried we were about you and our Lord replied did you not know that I must be about my father's business. What did he pray? Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The man in his mid-thirties is saying the same thing as the boy at the age of 12. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business and that's where the stability that's where the confidence that's where the calmness comes from the multitude arrives and Luke plunges us into the action look over there he says there's a crowd on the way and out in front of them is Judas the mob comes armed and dangerous they come under cover of darkness they come armed as if for war they come out as if to to take a robber with swords and with clubs and they come to Jesus Christ and we're going to try and stand where Christ stands and we're going to look out in concentric circles we're going to look at his interaction with Judas and then with the disciples standing a little further away and then with the crowd, the mob, the multitude, as they are gathered around him. Jesus and Judas. Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus and the multitude. When it comes to Jesus and Judas, a cruel kiss is condemned. Judas is out in front. He who was called Judas, one of the twelve went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas has got perhaps a big smile on his face. We know from other records, Rabbi, Rabbi, language of affection. His arms are open wide. As he draws near, his lips pucker up to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to give him this kiss of greeting and respect. Everything about Judas at this point outwardly indicates warm affection 
and close relation. But the kiss is a prearranged signal. The man that I embrace, the man that I kiss, that's the man that you are after. It is perhaps the cruelest moment of Judas' career. We don't know what was going on with the man who kept the money bag and wanted that money for himself. Perhaps there were times when he had already deprived others of what was intended for them. But now notice how Luke describes him. Judas, one of the twelve. Three years as one of the Holy Christ's closest companions. Some of the commentators suggest that Luke can't even bring himself to say that he kissed him. It gives the impression that Judas speaks before, Luke, uh, before Judas even gets there. But we do know that from Mark's gospel at least, he, he gets his arms around him and he, he warmly embraces him and kiss, kisses him. And Luke in his sensitivity, almost, I, I don't even want to write that. Judas is preempted with perfect understanding. I wish I knew the tone in which the Lord Jesus said these words. I wish I could recreate, even in some measure, in an English translation, where the emphasis lies. Judas. Are you? You, one of the twelve? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. Every word hits home. Of all people, Judas, you who have seen so much, who have been taught so clearly, who have enjoyed such blessing, who have tasted of the good things of heaven, you've, you've, you've entered in, in measure, into the wonders of the kingdom of God. You've, you've seen what's taken place. You've heard what has been said. You yourself have known something of that favour. And here you are, betraying. This shows the depths to which this man has sunk. This shows the extent to which Satan has got a grip upon his soul. This is a man who is ready to deliver his Lord into the hands of his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. <coughs> and you're not just betraying anyone. You're betraying the Son of Man. It's not even the personal relationship, but it's a personal relationship with the one who is God's chosen vessel. This is the Messiah. This is the one in whom God delights. This is the one who has been sent from heaven for the purposes of mercy. Christ is self-aware. He can call God his father in that distinctive sense. He knows himself to be the son of man. And his identity heightens the horror of this betrayal. <coughs> Excuse me. And then Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man? That would be fearful enough, but with a kiss. Most of us haven't had someone stab us. And so we don't know really what it means to twist the knife. But this is to make the wound and then to make it hurt. Judas acts under cover of a gesture of affection in delivering the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, into the hands of his enemies. 
It's a very calm confrontation, isn't it? It's a very simple question. It's not bewilderment. It's not hysteria. He is exposing the heart of Judas, the betrayer. And my friends, there is stunning mercy here. As Judas comes toward the Lord Jesus, and Jesus says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? This is Judas's last chance. Humanly speaking, he could turn back even now. And the Lord Christ prompts him to do so. Do you feel the weight of that question? How would you want to feel if you were about to act toward Jesus of Nazareth the way Judas is? What would you want to do? What impact would you want those words to have on you? Are you now betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Wouldn't you want to rear back in horror? Wouldn't you want to draw? No, no, if that's, you've put your finger on it, Christ, and, and I can't do this. But Judas can, and Judas does. And it may be that this is the moment at which the other disciples actually twig. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus had said just a few hours before, one of you is going to betray, is it me? Am I going to do that? Could I sink even to those depths? When he said to Judas, what you have to do, do quickly. They didn't really understand why Judas was going out into the darkness. And now Judas is coming toward them. And it's Judas and, and the mob and the Lord is asking him, are you going to betray me now with a kiss? The Lord knew. I don't think that made it any better for him. But understand the shock, perhaps, in the hearts of the disciples, as they now understand that one of the twelve, a man alongside of whom they've walked and eaten and spoken and slept, that that man is betraying their Lord with a kiss. May I offer a couple of painful lessons? Do not assume that eminence among God's people is a sign that someone will not betray Christ. It's horrible, it's painful, it is grievous. But the people, perhaps the names that are most prominent in our minds when we think of those who've turned their back upon Jesus Christ, they're often the people who've attained to some measure of prominence in the kingdom. And it makes it all the more horrible and all the more fearful. Let us not assume that just because someone has a great reputation, not just because someone has attained a measure of prominence or eminence, not just because someone has known something of God's favour, that they therefore are assured of their place in the kingdom. And that means, brothers and sisters, that you and I need to guard our hearts. See, it's very easy to read something like this and say, well, maybe it's him or maybe it's her or maybe it's one of them. The right question is, Lord, let it not be me. Let me not be the man, the woman, who turns their back upon you under such circumstances. It's horrible because it's typical for nominal Christians to betray with kisses. Most of the people who claim to follow Jesus Christ, who then attack Christ and his church, they don't come saying, we're going to do you harm. 
We're going to bring you down. We're going to destroy you, at least not in private. What they come saying is, we have a great concern for the honour of God. We really care for the church. We're trying to protect the people of God. <coughs> Hypocrisy is a fearful thing. Judas betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. Brothers and sisters, let us make sure that our hearts are right with God and that we will not then, because of some sin that we've nurtured, because of some appetite that has never been crucified or mortified, like Judas with his greed, that that won't be the point where Satan finds his way into my soul or yours in order to bring us against our Saviour. Judas comes in, close enough to hug the Lord Christ, close enough to kiss him, and the cruel kiss is condemned. The next circle out is Jesus and his disciples, the striking sword that is stopped. When those around him saw what was going to happen, feel the shock. Now is the moment of understanding. Judas is betraying him. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's why this crowd is here. These chief priests and these captains of the temple and the elders who have come down to see what is going on. And now we understand. And someone says, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them did. One of them grabbed their sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now they're shocked out of their lethargy. They were dopey in the garden. They were asleep. They couldn't watch and pray. But now seems to be the moment for action. Lord, is this when we strike with the sword? They still haven't got it, have they? Go back to what we said, verse 36. Now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Be ready, my servants, that in the light of the cross, the dynamic of your service in this world is going to change. And you need to go on a war footing, not in a carnal sense, but you need to equip yourselves as those who are going to go out, no longer able to rely upon the kindness and the mercy of the places to which you go, but primarily going in to contexts where there's going to be hostility and antagonism and they said to him look lord here are two swords and this seems to be the moment that they've been waiting for this this is for them this is a joining of the dots he said we're going to need swords we found two swords well this is the moment for swords surely this is when we strike and one of them doesn't even wait for an answer but whips out his sword and attacks the people who are right in front of him. Now we actually know the name of the man who whipped out his sword and we actually know the name of the servant whose ear was ripped off. Peter. And at this point perhaps we go, yep, <laughs> that's what we expected in the light of even everything that we've gone before. And this other man's name is Malchus. Just as a matter of interest... Chances are that only John tells us it was Peter and only John tells us it was Malchus because both Peter and Malchus may well have been alive at the time when Matthew, Mark and Luke were written. 
And if it gets around that Peter once hit the high priest's servant with a sword in front of the Roman soldiers, then Peter's already in more trouble than he would have been normally. So Luke's just drawing a veil over here to make sure that Peter doesn't get into trouble. You also see Luke the medical man. Luke's the man who tells us, and you can, you can almost imagine the interview, can't you, with whoever Luke was talking to, the, the disciples or someone else. Yet yeah, then, then Peter took his sword out of his sheath and he, he struck at this man called Malchus. And Malchus tried to duck, but Peter caught him a glancing blow on the side of his head and cut off his ear. Cut off his ear. Oh, which ear was that, just out of interest? It's the doctor's question. It was his right ear. Peter had boasted, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And on one level, this is Peter's courage and bravery. Have you ever had to face down a mob? It's a brave thing that Peter does. It's more courage than faith. But it is, at least on one level, courage. Peter's the man who steps in front of Jesus and thinks, this is the moment where I prove my worth. Pulls out his sword and strikes at the crowd in front of him. Peter is, though, if you look at his language, he's, he's brave enough to fight. He's not brave enough to stand. You see what happens here. The hearts of these men have not been prepared by prayer as Christ's was. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. And so their hands are not now governed by submission to the Father's will. Remember that our Lord also says, Luke doesn't record it, that if he wanted to at this moment, he could have called upon legions of angels to come down and stand with him. And no mere mob or multitude will stand against the legions of angels, but Christ's heart is subdued and submitted and entirely reconciled willingly and cheerfully to his Father's will as the God-man, as the Redeemer. And these disciples, now in this moment of crisis, you see what is in their hearts. Still they fail to grasp the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God and the conflict in which they are involved they're standing, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the forces of darkness and wickedness in the heavenly places. Our Lord, shortly when he stands before Pilate, is going to emphasise, my kingdom is not of this world. If God's kingdom is of this world, then we need to tool up, folks. We need to arm up. We need to be ready to take the battle and conquer the ground. But it's not. It's not carnal weapons, but spiritual. And again, I want you to, to, to add, try and put yourself in the darkness and in the shadows with the flickering torchlight and the confusion 
and the danger that there is taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane at this moment. This is the proverbial powder keg. This could all kick off. You know how difficult it is to see and to know what's going on in the darkness. Christ has been across to one side. Maybe the disciples had a torch or two. Maybe they're relying on sun, uh, moonlight and starlight. But now this mob comes and they've got the torches. They're marching through. And then Jesus comes forwards and he embraces Jesus. And then there's this scuffle. And there's the sound of steel on steel as the sword is drawn. And there's this thud and there's this cry. And all the soldiers and all the, the, the temple guard they're getting their clubs ready you can hear swords being drawn what's going on who struck whom what happens next permit even this says Jesus he's probably speaking to the disciples let this happen to me even this it may have an effect on the mob don't react to this. Don't you find it amazing that the man that they've come out to arrest can speak and he calms the situation? And more than that, he now steps forward to this man, this Malchus, whose ear has been cut off. It's perhaps hanging by a thread, been torn from the side of his head by the force of the blow, glancing or otherwise. And the Lord Jesus presses the ear back onto the side of his head and heals him entirely. Do you want to see the heart of God? This is the last healing miracle that Jesus performs. He's done some wonderful things. But one of the most wonderful on certain levels is the fact that there in the midst of his betrayal and arrest in Gethsemane, the last man who enjoys the physical healing of the Lord Jesus is one of those who's come out to put him in chains and carry him off into Roman custody. This is the man who said, love your enemies. Here he is in action. Christ's words and Christ's deeds here in the shadows of Gethsemane give the lie to potential accusation and confusion about what's taking place. See, they've come out against him as against a robber. At this point, and especially if the disciples are now drawing their swords, someone could say, you see, we had good reason for this. This is guerrilla warfare. This is a political campaign. This is a military plot. This man is an enemy of the state. No, they can't say that because the Lord says, even this, let this pass. Put up your swords. And he reaches out and he heals one of the men who, if he were a freedom fighter, he would rather see killed. His kingdom is not of this world. My friends, we need to grasp that. We do not fight with carnal weapons. And I don't just mean swords and spears or knives and guns and grenades. Our weapons are spiritual. We do not buy into the world's modes of dealing, defending or attacking. We do not need what the world says is the best way to make things happen. Christ says... This is not the way I fight. 
The disciples are not to fight as if his kingdom were of this world, and his enemies are not excused as if that were so. This seems to be the moment at which the disciples flee. They don't know what to do next. They can't fight. Jesus has just told them not to. The mob is closing in. It's clear who the ringleader is. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the man who stands calm and controlled at the centre of this maelstrom, dealing with Judas as he draws near, able to speak just a few words, and the mob and the disciples all fall still. And now Jesus is in the hands of his enemies. Again, perhaps incidentally, what do you do when you panic? The disciples got a sword and started smashing. My friends, beware of the moment of panic. Beware of the moment of fear. Beware of the time when the pressure comes and finds your heart unprepared and your hand ungoverned by the word and the will of God. We do foolish things when we are afraid. Peter did, and we do too. Christ was the man who had submitted himself to the will of his Father in heaven. And he, therefore, was able to navigate these circumstances. Perhaps then the disciples are melting out into, melting into the darkness. They're, they're drifting away. In the darkness, in the shadow, they're able, able to slip through the crowds. We know again that, uh, that the soldiers tried to grab a few of them. Mark tells us about a young man, probably Mark himself, who'd rushed out wearing nothing but a sheet wrapped around his body and someone managed to grab the sheet and in his desperation he left it and ran naked into the garden to hide in the night. And then Jesus speaks to the multitude. Again, it's astounding, isn't it? Who's in control here? Who's managing this situation? And he mentions the overkill. The chief priests are there, the captains of the temple, and the elders who have come out to him. An armed mob with swords and clubs marching into Gethsemane as if to take out a robber and his gang. And there they are standing around. You can you know, imagine them with their clubs in their hands and their swords drawn, ready for the fight. And there's one unarmed man standing in the midst and he's just healed one of their number. It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's grossly disproportionate. All these people and all their equipment for a man who is quite ready to step into their custody. Christ challenges them about what they're doing and why they've done it. And he challenges not just the crowd generally, the chief priests, the captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him. Have they come out to gloat? Are they trying to make sure that this time they get him? Again, these are not the people that you send to arrest a robber, are they? No, that's for the, that's for the grunts. That's for the privates and the sergeants. No, these have come out because they want to make sure that this happens the way they've wanted. And Jesus asks them, why this display of force? 
What made you think this was necessary? You don't understand who I am, do you? You don't know why I've come, do you? You haven't grasped my character. You haven't understood my work as God's prophet, God's great priest, the true king of Israel. You could have done this very easily when I was with you daily in the temple, but you didn't try to seize me. Why? You were afraid. You are deceitful. You are full of lies. You're afraid of what the crowd will think. We've seen that before. We, we can't do it now because everybody thinks he's a prophet. The crowd thinks he's wonderful. We need to wait for our moment. You're afraid of popular opinion. You're guilty of gross self-interest. And that's why you're working in the darkness. It's interesting, isn't it, how often people who are doing something wrong do it in the dark. Typically the sign of a guilty conscience. We want secrecy. We want privacy. We want darkness. We want to be able to feel like no one can really see it's us. We wear a mask. We want to cloud and cover up our identity. And Jesus says, I know what's in your heart. You didn't do this when you could have done. You couldn't just take me when I was there in the temple. But you've come out as against a robber with swords and with clubs. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. We've had such hours before, or rather we've not had such hours before. In chapter 20 and verse 19, for example, the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. It wasn't yet that hour. It wasn't yet that moment. That time had not yet come. And so God in his mercy prevented those things coming to pass. But now this is when these things are going to happen. And our Lord, just as he penetrates to the heart of Judas, he penetrates to the heart of this situation. What is really taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane? It is satanic malice that is breaking out against God's Christ. And it should terrify them. That the Son of Man should say to the mob, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is when you become agents of hellish antagonism. This is where you show to whom you really belong. That though you may claim to be followers of the living and true God, your father is the devil and you are doing his will. This is your hour and the power of darkness, says Jesus in the middle of the maelstrom. My friends, expect evil to have its moment. There are hours, there are seasons, there are periods in your experience, in the experience of the church, in the spirit of the age when evil seems to get the upper hand. But it only has an hour. The worst things that we see, the greatest battles that we fight, the worst struggles that we have, if we are God's people, they have an end. Maybe that end is our death when we're delivered 
Maybe it's the coming of Jesus Christ, or maybe again it's some providential arrangement by which the Lord is pleased to bring his people through. But you know what's most comforting? It's the man who says, you've got an hour. Christ is in control. God himself is designating what is taking place at this moment. Christ is not being swept along like a twig on the current of events. Christ stands as a man who is about his father's business. And with the mob around him, with their swords and with their clubs, with their torches and their armour glinting in the light, with the chief priests and the temple guard and everything happening around him, the Lord Jesus says, you have an hour now. And it is the power of darkness. But I recognise it. I understand it. And I, I know what I'm doing as I put myself into your hands. So Jesus is arrested. Jesus is taken. They grab him. They bind him. And they lead him and bring him into the high priest's house. Jesus goes. That's what I want you to understand. You say he's taken. He is, but he's also given. You say he's arrested. He is. But because he is willing to be. Because he could have called upon legions of angels. He could have called upon heavenly armies that would have put Peter and his sword to shame. Others tell us that when he identified himself to them, I am, they fell down in terror. There are any number of moments and ways in this narrative where the Son of Man could have manifested his glory as the eternal God in the flesh and put all his enemies to flight and established a kingdom in this world which you would have thought would never end. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This isn't the way Messiah saves. This isn't the kingdom of God. This isn't the way that kingdom comes. The Lord Jesus puts himself into the hands of his enemies because this is the way that he will save his people from their sins. My friends, our Christ is not being swept along on the current of wild events. He is walking with steps of deliberate faith. As much as he did when his parents found him in the temple as a 12-year-old, he might have said now, as Judas draws near, as the disciples struggle and wrestle and strike and flee, and as the mob get their hands on him, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? We look at this with grief, with pain, with tears, and there in the midst 
to the heart of God revealed. The will of the Father for our salvation. A Christ at whom we marvel. A Christ I want you to trust because of his humility, because of his strength, because of his courage, because of his faith, because of his obedience to his Father in going to die for sinners like me and you. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so here we marvel, we honour, we adore, we trust, and we go on walking with Christ through the darkness of these hours.